there's some similarities to what we were speaking about yesterday and in a certain sense is, is different. Uh, but for sure, uh, in terms of the information of, you know, it's, it's a completely different presentation. What, um, what we know about Hanukkah, what we can observe about Hanukkah, is that really Hanukkah seems to be two miracles. We talk about a miracle in terms of military victory, which is something that's described pretty aptly in the al and that additional prayer that you put into the grace after meals and into the davening, where we speak about what the Greeks intended to do and how Hashem in His great compassion allowed us to stand up against all odds and be able to conquer the Greeks and be able to go back into the temple. And in the Alanism itself, which primarily is dedicated to discussing the military victory, um, that's what it's dedicated to, the, uh, how unreasonable it was for us to assume that we would win or that we could win such a war, that we stood up and that we fought such a war, and how we finally used the war to be able to re-enter the temple. But anybody that looks at the text of the Alanism prayer for Hanukkah knows that the primary function is a description of the military victory. And it's just like in the last line, it says, and afterwards our children came into the temple and lit the menorah and they made a holiday of Hanukkah. It doesn't even say anything about the fact that the oil burnt for eight days instead of just the one. It doesn't even talk about that miracle in the sense of it being a miracle. And obviously, it doesn't speak about that because that's not what it's there for. It's there to discuss the military victory. That it does. And then it says, subsequent to the military victory, we did what we did in the temple. And then we have the second miracle of Hanukkah, which is the, the miracle of the oil burning for the eight days. And that seems to also have found itself a niche in Hanukkah in the lighting of the Menorah. So here we have before us uh, a holiday that has two basic miracles. They seem to basically have been designated two different tracks of commemoration. The military victory is commemorated in prayer, and the, uh, the uh, oil miracle is commemorated in the lighting of the menorah. And one begins to wonder, like, how are we supposed to relate to this holiday? In other words, why was it divided up this way? Now, most people understand this in the following way, that there is really no relationship between the two miracles other than they're both miracles, number one, and number two, that they're in sequence. We won, and we were on a roll, so we went from one roll to another roll, and we lit the menorah in the base HaMikdash. But uh, we don't really see like a unifying concept between those two miracles other than whoopee. We, we got back to where we were supposed to be. But other than that, there doesn't seem to be any unifying factor. And in fact, if you look at the observances of Hanukkah, they seem to be departmentalized. Military victory, discuss it in Alanisim. Miracle of oil, do it in the Menorah. It, does, it, it, it seems to be pretty separate. And the most that we could say about both of them is that they're sequential and that they were both miracles. What I'd like to do today in the class is I'd like to demonstrate how there is a very fundamental common denominator in both, 
of these miracles, other than, of course, them just being miracles, but that there is a deeper common denominator in both. But with them having a common denominator, why one was relegated to prayer and one was relegated to the mitzvah of the menorah. Okay? You won't find the menorah discussed in the Alanisim, and you won't ever say that the menorah is lit because of the military victory. And never, the, uh, we don't, when we light the menorah, we light the menorah because we won militarily? No. When we say Alanisim, do we talk about the miracle of the menorah? No. It seems to be very departmentalized. Okay? So with all of the departmentalization that these two miracles of Hanukkah have, I'd like to show the common denominator in both. And with the common, not common denominator being what it is, why our sages relegated each miracle to its form of expression. That the military victory, its form of celebration is in prayer, and the, the miracle of the oil, its form of celebration is in the lighting of the menorah. Now, in order to appreciate somewhat what's, what's going on over here, it's necessary to get some history, okay? And what we're really going to do is we're going to bind together and try to understand how history is all unified. And certainly one of the demonstrations would be in the history of the menorah. Now, we know that at the beginning of Parshas Pahaloscha, there's a very interest, interesting episode that takes place. Now, the episode is not so so um, de uh, described in detail in the Chumash itself, but it is described in the Madrash. We know that the building of the tabernacle of the Mishkan in the in the desert was not simply a place of worship. You know, you made a building campaign, you built a place to daven, and now we have a place to daven. We know that there was a tremendous importance attached to the tabernacle because it came on the heels of the forgiveness for the golden calf. And because it came on the heels of the forgiveness for the golden calf, what it signified was not only that God was able to forgive us, but that he felt comfortable enough after forgiving us to want to be with us. And therefore the Mishkan became a testimony of forgiveness and it also became a testimony of the level of forgiveness the level of forgiveness that we can come back together again not just I forgive you but let's not ever have anything to do with each other again so the and this is one of the explanations that the Medrash Tanchuma gives why the tabernacle is referred to as Mishkan Ha'edus the tabernacle of testimony there are many different interpretations why it's called the tabernacle of testimony and one of the interpretations of the Medrash Tanchuma is that it's a testimony that God has forgiven his people and has reclaimed his relationship with his people, an intimate relationship with his people. Now, the heads of the twelve shvatim of the twelve tribes, the Medrash teaches us, came to Moses and said to Moses, we would like to make our own celebration of the convocation of the tabernacle. We'd like to celebrate it. It's a very significant thing. It means a lot to us. And we would like to bring sacrifices, etc., etc., that are a unique expression of the celebration. And Moses said, we have to wait on this. This is not something that we can do on our own. We need to look for guidance in this and not merely go ahead and do on our own. And part of the reason for this was because the sin of the golden calf, sin of the golden calf 
in part came out of the error of not looking for guidance and counseling and just doing what you were inspired to do on the moment. And therefore Moses says, I will turn to God and I will ask God what he what his advice on this matter is and we'll we'll do it by the permission of God. We're not gonna so to speak go out on a limb and do something as inspired as we might feel it's coming from, but let's do it with the guidance of God. And basically God told them exactly what to bring and the order in which it would be brought. In other words, which tribe would bring on the first day. In other words, each day for the first twelve days of the month of Nisan, each day belonged to one of the twelve Shvatim. And the way the Medrash describes it is that there was a list that was given out of the tribes and their days and what they would bring and that this was passed around in Klal Yisrael so that each tribe went home and prepared for its day of celebration in the Mishkan. Now, what happened, which is a very interesting thing, is that the Medrash tells us that Aaron looked for his name, and if not for his name, at least for a representative of his tribe, to also be represented in this celebration. And lo and behold, his name wasn't there, nor was his entire Shevet there. And Aaron was very upset about this. And the first reaction that Aaron had to this, which is described most aptly in Hebrew, Kol Shadaitai, which means that he had a tremendous disappointment. And he said, Oily, woe unto me, these are the words of the Madrish, Oily, woe unto me, Shemipnei Chatai, Nitchesi, Vinitches Koshifti. That because of my involvement in the sin of the golden calf, for the level that I was on as a leader of the people, I have been pushed away and I've been rejected by God and because of myself being rejected my entire tribe has also been rejected and that's why we're not part of the list of those that would celebrate the convocation of the tabernacle. So in other words Aaron's conception of what was going on over here was that for the totality of the Jewish people there was forgiveness but for Aaron who was on a higher level and who was expected to perform on a different level and was to a certain extent the leader and that not willingly but unwillingly was involved in leading them into this sin of the golden calf he felt that this was something that he could never ever wipe clean from his slate and that because of it he was being rejected as being a participant in the celebration of that mishkan that was the what? the symbol of forgiveness so this is what Aaron was going through and what we are told is that God came to Aaron when Aaron felt this feeling and God told him you're making a big mistake not only will you have a part in the celebration of the of the convocation of the tabernacle but your your participation in its celebration will be of a greater nature than theirs why? Because your job is going to be to clean and to light the menorah. And that constitutes a greater celebration of the tabernacle. Now, Nachmanides right away comes and, said, and begins trying to probe why the lighting and the cleaning of the menorah constitutes a greater celebration than what everybody else was doing. Okay? Uh, the others brought sacrifices. Aaron didn't bring sacrifices. Aaron lit the menorah. In what way is the lighting of the menorah considered in, in any way uh, equal or superior to the celebration that the other tribes did? 
So this is one question that Nachmanides has, and Nachmanides quotes a medrash that seems to suggest that the greatness of the lighting of the menorah was that the lighting of the menorah would be eternal. And Nachmanides says, I don't understand this medrash, because the reality is, is that when the tabernacle went out and when the temple was destroyed, the same way that sacrifices ended, so did the lighting of the menorah end. We don't see any longevity in what Aaron did in relationship to the menorah over what the tribe heads did in relationship to sacrifice. So what does the Medrash exactly mean when the Medrash says that yours is a greater celebration because yours is forever? It's not forever. This is the question that Nachmanides asks. Amongst other questions, but that's his primary question. And Nachmanides gives a very famous answer that everybody quotes, but nobody knows what he means. Nachmanides' answer is yes. Aaron's lighting of the menorah in the tabernacle is forever. Why is it forever? Because it was based upon his lighting of the menorah that we were able to relight the menorah in the times of the Greeks, in the Hanukkah story. And for that matter, the Ramban says that if a Jew lights a menorah in 1991, that's also part of Aaron's lighting of the menorah. So Aaron's lighting of the menorah is forever. Because even after the temple was destroyed, we always light the menorah in the holiday of Hanukkah. Now that's very inspirational and it's very nice. But what does our lighting of the menorah have to do with Aaron's lighting of the menorah when they convocated the tabernacle? First of all, his lighting of the menorah was based on the fact that the menorah had to be lit every day. We're only lighting at Hanukkah. Number two, he lit it as a Kohen. Okay? We don't light the menorah as descendants of Aaron as Kohanim. We like the menorah as a commemoration of something. So what does it mean? Aaron, the lighting of the menorah is eternal because even those that are not related to you and don't belong to the Shevet of Levi will always light the menorah in the Yantif of Hanukkah. Now, it's very nice, but what is it supposed to mean? Like, what's the connection here? What's the connection to the Greek period? And what's the connection to 1991 that Aaron's lighting of the menorah then has a relationship to our the lighting of the menorah? to the extent that we could say that what was given to Aaron was an eternal gift. Why? Because his children would light the menorah in Gaulus, in exile. What is it supposed to mean? So, what I was thinking was like this. Today's, today's lecture is completely my own. But what I was thinking was today. What I was thinking, uh, what I was thinking about is like this. We find a very interesting phenomena in relationship to, to Aaron that's described very vividly by another Madrash. When Aaron went over to the altar for the first time to begin the service, Moshe saw Aaron doing something and immediately understood what was going on. He saw Aaron approaching the Mizbeach, approaching the altar, and then all of a sudden backing off in tremendous fear. Now the Madrash tells us what was going on. The Medrash tells us that as Aaron approached the Mizbeach, approached the altar, he actually saw the form of a golden calf in front of the altar. The golden calf that he had been indirectly instrumental in building. And what that meant to Aaron when he saw that vision, it was a vision, it wasn't actual, it was a vision, that Aaron couldn't believe that after his involvement in the sin of the golden calf that he could ever approach God's altar again or that he should be able to approach and do what he was set out to do 
In other words, what he was born to do in this world, that being the Kohen Gol, being the high priest in the Mishka. And because of it, he backed off in tremendous fear of his, his sense of inadequacy and unworthiness to approach the altar. Now Moshe, in an instant, understood what Aaron was going through, and Moshe said to Aaron, Krav el hamizbeach. You must overcome that fear. You must overcome that perception of unworthiness. And you must approach the altar, so to speak, jump over the golden calf, so to speak, and approach the altar. Now, what was Moshe teaching Aaron? What Moshe was teaching Aaron was that the feeling of, of, uh, of inadequacy and that the feeling that I've been inv- instrumental in something that was really a terrible thing in the eyes of God is not, is not an illegitimate feeling. It was only because in the language of the Ramban that Aaron was so spiritually developed and was so deeply connected to God that it could have meant so much to him the wrong thing that he did. Somebody whose relationship to God to begin with isn't so terribly deep is not going to be so terribly disturbed by this. His level of being disturbed with what happened was a reflection of the depth of how much he really cared to have a relationship with God and how he, so to speak, violated the relationship with God and how he couldn't live with himself that he had violated that relationship. So it was coming from a a place that really demonstrated a depth in his relationship and how he couldn't live with himself by having violated it. However, what Moshe said is that there's a time and place for those feelings. But when the feeling becomes so dominant and so strong that it immobilizes you and you begin to believe about yourself that you cannot move ahead and that you can't do what you need to do, then it's beyond the legitimate. Then it's beyond what is appropriate. And then you have, to, you have to skip over it. Then you have to fight it. Then you have to go against it. And you must proceed. You must march on. You have to assume the mission for which you were called down into this world to do. And the belief that I was called down for one mission, but I blew it and I'll never be able to reassume it, that's unqualified. Okay? To totally disregard the wrongdoing and not to feel bad about it and not to do what you can to fix it, that would be wrong. But to take it to such an extent that you become frozen in place, so to speak, and there is, I can't continue doing what my calling in life is because of it, that's not correct. Now, there's a very peculiar Rashi. When after, after God said to Aaron, the menorah is your celebration, and go and light it, the next verse says, Vayas Cain Aaron. And Aaron proceeded to do as he was instructed to do by Moses in the name of God, which meant to light the menorah. So there's a very peculiar Rashi. Rashi comes along and Rashi says, Lahagid shel Aharon. It's coming to teach me the praise of Aaron. Mind you, the, the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. That, that what? Melamed, Lahagid shel Aaron, Shaloshina that he didn't do differently than he was instructed to do. Now, if the Torah would say about you or me that we did as we were told to do, so maybe it's a praise. But when it comes to Aaron HaKohen, I mean, good morning. The high priest, the one that's supposed to officiate and be the symbol and the role model of all holiness with a deep relationship to God, 
comes along the Torah and says, you want to know a praise of Aaron? The praise of Aaron is that he did as he was told to do. What, would he, what, what, what do we think he would have done? He would have said, no, 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 I'm not lighting the menorah. I'm, I'm holding out for something else. Like, what, did, what is Rashi coming to teach us? So I think that the answer is like this. Aaron could have gone over to that menorah, okay, after being told that his celebration was greater, and he could have gone over to the menorah with two attitudes. Scenario number one is the following scenario. God feels bad for me. I really, really am not part of the celebration. And God is, so to speak, giving me a consolation prize. You know, throwing me a, a bone. I feel bad, and, you know, God has Rachmanes. So, you know, he says, I have something for you to do also. Like you ask one of your kids to do something, and the other kid starts whining and crying that they want to do it, so the mother digs up some kind of a stupid job so that the other kid should also feel like they have something to do. Okay? Which is an important thing. But Aaron could certainly have gone over to the menorah and lit the menorah and say, thanks God for caring enough about me to give me a consolation prize. That would have been one way. Another scenario is to really, really believe deep, deep down that I can reassume my calling and my mission and I can like the Menaira. And that whatever I did is in the past and now I can go ahead. When Rashi says, I asked Cain Aaron and Aaron did as he was instructed to do, we're not talking about the physical lighting of the menorah. We're talking about the heart, the attitude that went into the lighting of the menorah. That when Aaron lit the menorah, he lit the menorah with the amuna, with the belief that yes, even after having fallen out and violated my relationship with Hashem, I can reassume my calling and mission and move towards the Mizbeach. So the, the element, okay, that Rashi is talking about when it says means that he did not light the, 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 the menorah in the disbelief of his being able to re reclaim his mission and that it's a consolation prize but he lit the menorah rather with the amuna that one can reclaim one's calling and one, one's mission so that's what went in, not maybe on a physical level into the lighting of the menorah, but the spiritual energy, the heart that went into the lighting of the menorah in Aaron's times. Now, after, after, after presenting that, okay, let's drop this period of history for a few moments, and let's move ahead, and let's advance ahead, and let's advance ahead into the Greek period. Okay? And we're talking in the Greek period about after the conquering, after the military victory, after the military victory, we come into the temple and we're looking for oil to light the menorah. Now mind you, a majority of the people as we spoke out yesterday are impure. There is absolutely no requirement of pure oil in such an instance. In fact, there's a tremendous discussion how even after they would find pure oil, how they wouldn't defile it when they would light the menorah. That's a whole discussion. How is that? In other words, find pure oil, but then by definition, whoever would like the menorah would be defiling it. Right, so they have answers that it wasn't the majority of the people that were, it was a majority, but not everybody, so a single individual that was pure would light it. But there's much, much discussion. The menorah itself, according to some opinions, had become defiled because of the war with the Greeks. 
So, whatever it be it as it may, whatever the discussions are, but clearly there was no requirement to look for pure oil. Alright? And the question that comes up is that if there was no requirement of pure oil, why did they look for it? Number one. Number two, why did God make a miracle that that oil burnt for eight days till they were able to produce pure oil? God doesn't make miracles unless they're absolutely necessary. These are two questions that I spoke about in, in a different vein yesterday. But these are two classical questions in regards to Hanukkah. Now, I, I have an interesting way of looking at this, which, which is, is, is somewhat different, but I really think that this is what took place in, in the Hanukkah story. The first thing that we need to understand, okay, about this whole episode is that the Jew is a very peculiar creature. What do I mean that he's a very peculiar creature? A Jew doesn't always only operate from technical, cold, calculated aspects. A Jew has more to him. Let me give you an example of this. After the sin of the golden calf, it took 80 days of Moses' prayer, in addition to our own prayers, to accomplish forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. The 80 days were up on the Day of Atonement, and that's what the basis for the Day of Atonement. Right? After Moses finally gets through 80 days of prayer, and he's finally convinced God to forgive the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf, so God makes a statement to Moses. And God says to Moses, guess what? Lo e'ele I myself will not be in your midst now. Why? For your own good. Because if I'm in your midst, okay, and you sin again, the insult to me of you sinning while I'm in your midst is of such a great nature that you will endanger your existence. So therefore, I'm not going to let you go, but I will send malachim. You'll travel through the desert with angels. And I myself will not go, not because I'm, so to speak, getting even with you, but for your own good, lo So Moses turns around to God, and Moses says to God, like this is quite unbelievable, you have to learn the Chumash to know this. But Moses turns around to God and says, guess what, God? You ain't going, I ain't going. In other words, if you're not going in our midst, you know, with all of your reasons that it's for our own good, guess what, God? You ain't going, I ain't going. Finished. It's over. I'm not moving. Now, you have to understand this. Okay? Here Moses has just gotten through 80 days and he's finally gotten out of God's forgiveness for what? For the sin of the golden calf. And now Moses is playing hardball with God. Like as if Moses is in the superior position to be able to negotiate that only God should go. Like Moses, take what you can get and pack out. You got forgiveness. Count your lucky stars. Don't push your luck. Who are you to play hardball with God at this point in time in Jewish history? But that's what I mean when I say that the Jewish people are peculiar. The, the Jew has in him that when he has any hint that he can reclaim part of his past, he doesn't know where to stop. He doesn't know where to stop, and it might not be rational, and it might not be realistic, but if I can get a hold of what, what I once was, okay, and what I w once was meant to be, all right, the Jew will, 
show a chutzpah. There's no better word for it. Will show a chutzpah and a boldness and an audacity to actually want and demand and expect and yearn to be able to reach something that is not realistically my present. That's what the Jew is made up of. So when we ask the question, for example, why did the Jew look for pure oil? Technical halacha didn't require it. The Jew wasn't in the mode of technical. The Jew was in the mode that God has now demonstrated and has shown me that I can resist, I can overcome. They had just gone through a tremendous victory in a military sense over the Greeks. And it wasn't because they wanted to be written into the, into, the, into the annals of military history that they accomplished such a phenomenal feat. They took it on a very personal level that God was showing them a sign that they can overcome, that they can regain ter- spiritual territory that they had lost. On, the, on the, the slightest hint that they could regain that territory, they didn't want to hear of the idea of compromise. They didn't want to hear about the idea of accepting the present. They didn't want to hear that. And therefore, though they weren't required, and rationally and logically the probability of finding pure oil was next to nil, there was still something inside of them that said, i got to try, and I'm going to do it, because inside of me is, is there's a stubbornness that's cooking inside of me that's saying I want my past I want to have what I had before I lost it to the Greeks so it's not a question of what they were technically required in it was, it was rather an emotional response from a very very deep place with inside of themselves that knew not to accept the present in other words the reality was they could have said to themselves as follows Hey, listen, Charlie, if the, if the temple is desecrated, the Greeks did it, but the Greeks did it only as a mirror of what you did to desecrate your internal temple. You've got to live with what you... In other words, eat what you made. That could have been the attitude. This is what you created. This is what you made for yourself. Okay, stop being non, uh, unrealistic. This is what you created for yourself. Whether it, eat humble pie and finished, and that's it. But the Jews said, whoever was responsible or not responsible for it, that's not my point now. My point now is not the issue of taking responsibility. My issue now is to try to reclaim past. And with that attitude, they went to look for the oil. And because that was their attitude, which was really not part of the normal natural world, to look for oil and to, and to have that stubbornness to resist the present, they found pure oil and they lit the menorah. Now, let me give you a description of what I believe was going on. And I know it's an amazing way of trying to describe it, but that's the amazing Jew. They wake up the next morning, they go into the base of Mikdash, and that oil is still burning. And as the day proceeds, it's still burning. It's not that they put it out and lit it again, put it out, put it, lit it again. There are different opinions about this. But it's burning, and it's burning. It's a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day, and a fifth day, and a sixth day. Now, I maintain that, as ridiculous as this might sound, the Jew, in unspoken ways, was beginning to root 
for that cruise of oil. What do I mean he was beginning to root for that cruise of oil? In other words, they would never have dared think when they found it and lit it the first night that it was going to last till they would have pure oil. Tomorrow is another day, but if I can do it the right way today, I'm going to do it the right way today. But when they did see that it started burning miraculously way beyond the measure that it was meant to, they became suspicious. That was the first thing. Could it be that God knows what's going on deep inside of my heart? Could it be that God is sensitive to the fact that I want to, in irrational ways, reclaim my past? Obviously, there's something going on here, because why would the oil be burning beyond its normal measure of time? If it is burning beyond its normal measure of time, something's going on. And as the days proceeded, I would dare say that the Jew actually began hoping that it would last till they'd have pure oil. What they would never in their wildest dreams have thought of the first night that they, they lit that menorah, but as the days proceeded from day one to two, from two to three, to four, to five, to six, I think that there was a momentum of, of hoping in a very, very deep way that maybe the miracle could extend itself long enough that it would last till they would have pure oil. And I would even say that the reason why it continued burning from day to day was based in that deep-rooted hope that they had that maybe the miracle would extend itself till that point. If you want to know what was the oil burning on, from day one to day eight, what was it burning on? It wasn't a miracle without a basis. It was based on the fact that there was a deep hope in the Jew from day to day. Let's push another day, and another day, and another day, and maybe we can push this. Push this. They have to stand on the sideline and watch it. But maybe we could hope that it could last until I'd have pure oil. Now, if Hanukkah if the story of Hanukkah would have had the oil burning for two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, it's very conceivable that we would not have a holiday of Hanukkah. Because all Hanukkah would then have meant to us is that God is a God of miracles. Good morning. We have Pesach because God is a God of miracles. We have Sukkot because God is a God of miracles. We don't need a confirmation that God is a God of miracles. The message that was unique to Hanukkah was when the miracle lasted till the eighth day. Because then there was a message to the Jew that if a Jew really, really wants to reclaim his past, God is sensitive to that desire within the Jew, and that God says, I will bend over backwards and make miracles happen for you to help you reach your past. That message was in the eighth day. When the miracle lasted long enough until they had pure oil, so that there was no hiatus in, from the time that they began lighting the menorah until they had pure oil, where they had to compromise and accept their present. God was telling the Jew that if you really want your past, you don't have to compromise and just live in the present. 
you can reclaim it and I'll make miracles happen for you that you'll be able to advance and grow miraculously to reclaim your past. What it meant to be a Jew. That's why, parenthetically, the last day of Hanukkah, the eighth day of Hanukkah, is referred to in, in our literature as Zos Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. So the literal definition is because after the whole celebration is discussed in the Torah, it says the words, Zos Hanukkah Samizbeh. This is the convocation of the, of the altar in the Mishkan. Okay? So because the words on the eighth day of Hanukkah are Zos Hanukkah, so we call the day Zos Hanukkah. But that's nonsense. That's not the reason why the day is called Zos Hanukkah. The day is called Zos Hanukkah because the word Zos means this is it. In other words, the ultimate message of what Hanukkah is was nailed down with an absolute certainty when the miracle of the oil lasted till the eighth day. Zos Hanukkah in this lies the special message of Hanukkah beyond simply that God is a God of miracles. Now, with this we understand also why God made the miracle. God made the miracle because we needed to have the confirmation from God that if I am stubborn enough and desirous enough and have the, the, the strength of will to reclaim my past, that God will make miracles to help me. That's not an unnecessary miracle. That's an absolutely necessary miracle that a Jew needs to know. He needs to know that he can reach his past and that God's going to be with him and that beyond his arm's reach, as we were discussing yesterday, okay, he's going to be able to reach because God's going to be with him. He's not doing it alone. He's doing it with God. <clears throat> now, the question that comes up, and here is where you need to listen very carefully. The question that comes up is as follows. The Jew comes into the Beis HaMikdash, and he's, he's acting like the irrational chutzpah Jew that he is, and he's looking for this pure oil because he doesn't want to accept the present. He has to live, he has to reclaim his past, and he's looking for the oil. Right. What got this feeling going in the Jew? What got it going? So if you want to be very, so to speak, practical about it, you could say, well, they were on a roll. They had just won a military victory that was also irrational, so they see things are working that are irrational, so, no, if irrational things are working, let me do another irrational thing. It could be that that's part of the answer. But I think that there's a much deeper part to the answer. You know what the deeper part is? It's very, very simple what Nachmanides teaches us. Because Aaron, hundreds of years earlier, when he went over to that menorah, he went over to that menorah also with a struggle within himself. Do I have to accept my present and this menorah is just the consolation prize? Or do I like this menorah with the deep emuna, with the deep belief that this symbolizes for me that I can reclaim my past? What Aaron poured into the lighting of that menorah was more than oil. What Aaron poured into that menorah was the belief that I can reclaim my past. That's a lighting of the menorah that, that becomes indelibly marked into the spiritual genes of what Klal Yisrael are all about. And the Jew, hundreds of years later, 
we'll look for pure oil, which basically is another statement of I want to reclaim my past. Why? And why in the Menorah of all things in the base Hamikdash? Because it was a, there was an Ashama put into the lighting of the Menorah by Aaron hundreds of years earlier. And the name of that Neshama is, I believe with the full faith that I can reclaim my past. That was the Neshama that was put into the lighting of the Menorah. And because that was the soul that was put into the lighting of the Menorah, when the Jew approached lighting the Menorah in the base Hamikdash, hundreds of years later, that Neshama, which was still alive from so many hundreds of years before, woke up in the Jew. That was his spiritual legacy from Aaron. That woke up in the Jew and said, I must find pure oil, for I am not going to accept my present. I want to reclaim my past. So when Ramban says that the present that was given to Aaron is greater because it will last forever, and the Ramban says, and I'll prove to you that it lasts forever because that was the basis of the, of the convocation of the tabernacle to, during the times of the Greeks. The Ramban is not just saying something inspirational that doesn't have basis in fact. What the Ramban is saying is that Aaron, you can take what right now by you is a deficit, okay, and a liability, and you can turn it into one of the greatest spiritual gifts for your people. Because if you can take your sense of unworthiness and inadequacy and you can push it aside in the faith that with, with my failings being what they are, I can still reassume my calling and mission, you can actually, you more than anybody else, because you feel so deeply the way you do, and you nevertheless have the faith that you can reassume your calling and mission, so then that will be a gift that will be an eternal gift. Then no matter how far the Jew will fall in his future history, he will always have a deep down desire to reclaim his past. In other words, up until the point that Aaron was told, turn around and you've got to move ahead, so he was living with what he conceived of being a deficit, a liability. I was involved in a horrible thing and I was the leader. And God is saying, no, I'm telling you that your vantage point in celebrating the temple, the tabernacle as, as the edifice of forgiveness, your vantage point is that you can give something into the temple by the way you feel right, that will last the Jew way beyond the temple. That with all the, in other words, for a person to have the amuna, to have the belief within himself, that he can reassume his calling and his mission because he doesn't really feel that he re really fell out of it because what I did wasn't so terrible anyway. That's not really a namuna in, re in reclaiming one's mission. That's really saying that he never really fell out. But because Aaron really felt that he fell out and nevertheless he was being taught and he poured into the lighting of the menorah that I can reclaim it so God was saying to him that your particular way of looking at what took place, you can transfer it into the greatest advantage for your people, a lighting that will last forever. Right? And that's the way, by Ya'as Cain, Aaron Rashi says, and Aaron did as he was instructed to do, that he lit it with that amuna. So lighting it with that amuna, yes, physically, when the temple was destroyed, there is no physical lighting of the menorah. But that spiritual lighting of the menorah that's based in what? That's based in the Yamuna, that's based in the faith that a person can reclaim his mission after error, that lives on. That spans all generations. 
And Ahmanides takes it so bravely as to say that even in the year 1991, when a Jew lights his menorah, he should close his eyes and say, this lighting of the menorah is the lighting of the menorah in the tabernacle. In what sense? That a Jew is intimately connected to his past and that he has ability to reclaim his past and the greatness of his past if he's only determined enough to want to. And if he's determined enough to want to, the Yontif of Hanukkah reminds a person that when the question comes up, but it's impossible, the answer to the question is God makes miracles for impossible people that have impossible desires, that have irrational desires that don't want to accept the present. <coughs> this also parenthetically explains this also parenthetically explains the um, a teaching of the morale that we spoke about yesterday that miracles don't come just to anybody miracles come to people that themselves are miracles the fact that this miracle even even in the in, in the in the in the story how the story played itself out this miracle only was able to take place because the Jew, the Jew looked for the pure oil if the Jew would have just been the technical Jew, the whole the whole Hanukkah thing wouldn't have happened. The whole Hanukkah thing wouldn't have happened. Now, let me add one more point here, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll go to the miracle of the military victory and then tie the whole thing together. I'm describing the stubbornness of the Jew as being peculiar irrational, the miracle element of the Jew. But let me point out one thing. Call it as many names as you want to call it. But the secret of Jewish eternity lies in this. Because take, take the hypothetical case, take the hypothetical setting, where every time a Jew falls, okay, the Jew says to himself, listen, I fell, I have to be realistic, this is where I am, i got to do my best where I am, and that's it. And there's no more, there's no looking back, there's no yearning for what seems to be impossibly reachable in my past. How long will it take the Jew to disappear? How long will it take the Jew to become more and more and more watered down? always accepting another level of falling and another level of falling and another level of falling. Won't take long. But if the Jew has this element, as irrational as it might be, as ridiculous and as chutzpahdik as it might be, that I must reclaim my past, okay, then the Jew really has, by virtue of that characteristic, that the Jew has a tenacious hold on his own, his own eternity. Because that, in other words, the unwillingness to, to accept the influence and the watering down and the spiritual downfalls and regressions and that there's something that beats in the Jew that says that I have to have it kishanim kadmonios, like I've had it in years past. That's what keeps the Jew ultimately ticking 
ultimately always, so to speak, always resuscitating himself, always, always coming back. In other words, always bouncing back with a resiliency that knows that his greatness lies not in ditching his past, but reclaiming his past. So this stubbornness is from the Jew's side that which links up the Jew with, with qualitative eternity, qualitative uh, living on as a Jewish people. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, take a break for a few minutes. I'll, I'll discuss the second part of the military stuff and then I'll gladly take questions. Now, let's, let's for, for another five, ten minutes wrap up this this uh, this subject by concentrating a little bit on the military aspect of Hanukkah and and uh, bring the whole thing together and then I'll gladly take questions now I- if you look at descriptions of the historical period of time in which the the Hanukkah story took place it's really not, one is not really able to rationally understand how a group of people stood up as a small group of five people and assumed that they would be able to resist the Greeks and accomplish anything other, other than sanctifying God's name and losing their lives in, in the process. And one of the questions that's asked is where does that audacity come from? Right? In other words, when you're talking about in the Beis Hamikdash and you have a menorah in front of you and you have to serve Hashem and you're making a choice, do I serve Hashem like I am today or can I try to reclaim my past? In other words, where it's an issue where you're, so to speak, already in the framework of, of a responsibility of Avodas Hashem, that's one thing. But the Jew of that time there were many that shmadzich, and others the first time in Jewish history that there was major, so to speak, desertion of the Jew of, of Judaism was in the times of the Greeks. That was the fir- that was the first major time, and for the ones that did not desert, but watched their brethren deserting Judaism, it was an extremely demoralizing experience, and they hoped for themselves that they would just have enough strength to give their lives rather than to desert. But the third option, not to, de- not to desert or to desert, but a third option to actually stand up against the Greeks and to resist what they were doing, that wasn't anything that was on any conscious level in anybody's mind. And nevertheless, it happened. It took place. How does one understand this? So the Avni Nazar gives us a very, very interesting insight into how to understand this. In the Alanisim prayer, there is a ver- there is a quote from the Alanisim prayer that goes like this: and you, with your great compassion, you stood up for them, in their time of travail, in their tri- time of tsara. Rafta Esrivam, you fought their wars. Danta Esdinam, you judged what needed to be judged in the situation. 
Nakamta esnik masam, and you revenged who needed to be revenged. Now, anybody that has an ear for for, for literature knows that there's a major problem with this presentation. Let's see what what are we saying? That God in His great compassion stood up for us, and what did He do? He fought our cause, He judged our cause, and He revenged those that needed to be revenged. Now, any normal, sane individual will first make a judgment and then fight for the cause that he's judged legitimate. You don't do it in the reverse. You don't first fight for a cause and then stand back one day and decide, oh, let's, let's, let's judge the situation if it's a legitimate cause or not. First there's judgment if it's a legitimate cause, then you fight for the cause, and then you follow through, and you revenge what needs to be revenged. But that's not the way it's described. The way it's described is that the first thing that God did was that he what? He fought the cause, our cause. And then he judged, okay? Then he judged our, what needed to be judged. Then he needed to judge what need to, needed to be judged. And that's out of order. And maybe sometimes people operate like that, but certainly we wouldn't accuse God of jumping and doing something that said, oops, I didn't think about it yet. Let me judge the cause first. So what does it mean? So the Avni Nezer explains like this. The Avni Nezer explains that I'm going to apply my own simplistic example to this. The Avni Nezer says like this. He says, sometimes you have an issue with another person. Okay? And you really want to get into an argument with the other person. Okay? In order to be able to prove your point, win your point, persuade your point, whatever have you. The only trouble is that the other person is very put together, cool, calm, collected, okay? And whenever I try to raise the point, like the other person is not even interested in getting into a debate with me about it. So what do I have to do? So what I have to do, and many people do this, consciously or subconsciously, they decide that they're going to pick a fight. What does it mean to pick a fight? I try to, I explore and try to discover which buttons get the other person going, push enough of them with rapid succession as possible, get the person on, on high boil, or at least <laughs> simmering, and Baruch Hashem, I got the, now he's, now, now at least he's moving. Ah, now I can have a real fight with him. This is called, in English, this is called picking a fight where you're not really in the issue yet, but you're at least trying to, so to speak, stoke the fire that when we finally get into the issue, we both come out, so to speak, swinging. All right? There's no point in... You can't fight by yourself. You need to fight with somebody. And if the other person just doesn't want to fight, so you have to try to get them in the mode of wanting to fight. Oh, and then when you get them in the mode of fighting, then you start slugging around. That example is a pretty accurate example of how God viewed the Jewish people prior to the uprising of the Maccabees. God looks down at his people. They need to fight, but they have absolutely no desire to fight. They have no morale to fight, no desire to fight, no insight into how to fight. Right? And God's saying, I mean, this, this is ridiculous. It's, 
like the Jewish people will disappear simply out of default they won't even disappear out of fighting and losing they'll just disappear out of default so God says I can't let it happen and when God says I can't let it happen so what God does is God introduces into the Jew a desire to fight that when he would try to go through quote-unquote self-analysis and figure out how he arrived at the decision to fight he wouldn't find a logical bone in his body to be able to ex explain why he's fighting there's nothing in other words inside of me that can rationally understand why I'm standing up and I'm resisting and the answer is there ain't nothing inside of you that can rationally explain it because it's not coming from inside of you it's coming from a God that can't see you disappear out of default that's what's meant by the first words in the Alanism and God fought our cause fought our cause doesn't mean fighting our cause against the Greeks fought our cause means that he picked a fight that he got us into the mode of wanting to fight even though we didn't know why we wanted to fight the first thing Rafta is Rivam is not our fight with the Greeks it's that there should be a desire for us to fight within ourselves there should be a desire to fight that's the Rafta is Rivam and once God got us going on, on that then God said okay now there's a Jew in this corner and there's a Greek in this corner now who should win this God judged the situation and then proceeded into revenging the situation so it is in remarkable order the rafta is rivan the, the, the real in other words the first thing that's being described is God not, not God's fight with the Greek but God so to speak fight with the Jew himself that the Jew himself should rise out of complacency and apathy and want to fight and stand up for himself and that's utter compassion it was only out of your compassion God usually helps people that help themselves for God to stand up to a, and help a person that doesn't is not even holding by helping himself anymore that's in your utter compassion you stood up for us in other words we should have stood up and you should have helped you stood up for us and got us to start fighting and then it proceeded Dante's Dinam you judge the situation in Akantes Nikmasen the Avdinezer continues and then Avdinezer says is there anything that a Jew needs to do in order to merit God fighting with him to the point that he begins to fight is there anything that a Jew needs to do to receive this God picking a fight with him so to speak is there anything that the Jew needs to do so the Avninezer says by definition there can't be too much because if he's not holding by fighting the Greek okay and he's basically given up on the whole thing what can we already expect from him so the Avninezer says the Jew only needs one thing in order to receive this 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 inspiration from God to fight even though there's nothing inside of him that logically says I can fight and I can win one thing the Jew needs to do he needs to turn to God and he needs to say to God God I'm, I would love to be in a different place I would love to be in a different place but if you're going to ask me to do it 
and that I should proceed to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't have the desire to do it. I don't have the ability to do it. I don't have the motivation and energy to do it. But if you're asking me, deep, deep down, do I, would I like to be in a better place? I would like to be in a better place. Now, think for a moment. Is that really avoda? A Jew turns to God and says, God, leave me out of it. There's nothing that you can expect me to do. I don't have the energy, the motivation to do. I just have a few words to say to you, God. I'd like to be in a better place than I'm at. Is that avoda or is that tefillah? Which is it? Is that serving Hashem or is that tefillah? Is that prayer? That's prayer. So because the military victory was initiated by what? By God, so to speak, picking within us and getting us to fight. And in order to receive that, what did we do? Did we do avod or did we do tefillah? Did we do service or did we just say a few words to God, I'd like to be in a different place? We only said a few words to God. Prayer. So therefore, God put, the, our sages put the description of the military victory into our prayers. Because the, the, the root of where the military victory came from and the miracle of the military victory was really God's involvement with us that we merited based on one thing. Not on avoda, Based on what? Tefillah. Davening to Hashem. On the other hand, the lighting of the menorah, the miracle of the oil, that was based on avoda. We were going into the Beis Hamikdash. We wanted to do the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. And we wanted to do the mitzvah in the best way possible for the reasons that I explained before. So Hashem made a miracle. That, and where's the source of that miracle? The source of that miracle is within us. The legacy of Aaron. That was a miracle where we stood up and said we want to reclaim service. So that part of the miracle is ex- manifested and expressed in Hanukkah in the lighting of the menorah, in a mitzvah of lighting the menorah. So both miracles find their appropriate niche within the observances of Hanukkah. The first miracle, which was a miracle that had its deepest root in Hashem, uh, pushing our buttons that we might stand up for ourselves and begin fighting again, is based on tefillah. And therefore the military victory is discussed within the framework of tefillah. On the other hand, the miracle of the oil was based on our commitment to avodah, to serving Hashem, doing the mitzvahs of Hashem. So Hashem gave us back in commemoration of that miracle, a mitzvah, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. It's one of the seven mitzvahs, the rabbanah. It's one of the seven rabbinic mitzvahs that we have as a people. Now, but let's analyze just for one more moment. Now we've explained the two miracles and why each miracle is expressed where it's expressed. But what's the common denominator between the two miracles? The miracle of the, of, the, of the military uprising, which had its greatest, deepest roots in Hashem, okay? When does God move ahead and, so to speak, push the buttons that we might stand up and fight for ourselves again? At what point does God do that? When God sees that if that doesn't happen, the Jewish people are in danger of disappearing simply by default. That's again the conduct of Nitzchias. 
God's conduct of preserving the eternity of the Jewish people. The common denominator in the two miracles over here is that they both came from a place that guarantees the eternity of the Jewish people. The miracle of the military uprising was the part that God does, so to speak, in terms of the eternity of the Jewish people. That when the Jew falls so low that he's not even prepared to stand up for himself, God says, I'm not going to let you sit down and just disappear. The miracle of the oil is based in the spiritual legacy which is within the Jew himself that wants to reclaim his past, which is the wellsprings of eternity that are within the Jew himself. The relationship between the two is that Hashem knows that if he will initiate his wellsprings of the eternity of the Jewish people, that the Jew himself will dip into his own wellsprings of eternity and rejuvenate himself. In other words, the basis for Hashem's commitment to the eternity of the Jewish people is because God knows that the Jew is made up of the stuff of his own eternity. And sometimes the Jew just needs to, so to speak, be kicked into the position of what? Of then operating from the place of his own resources and his own wellsprings of eternity. It's that combination that while the miracles come from different sources, the common denominator is eternity. Okay? The relationship between the miracles is God says, this people is for keeps. This people is an eternal people. Because if I know if I demonstrate my conduct of eternity in relationship to them, they will also manifest the element of eternity that lies within themselves. So that would be the the relationship between them as well. Now, I'd, li I'd like to just close with another little interesting piece that I've never really spoken about in, in, in earlier classes on the same subject. I'd like to just add one more point here, okay? And then the rest of the time, if there are questions, I'll go through the questions. There's a very interesting argument between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel about how we light the menorah of Hanukkah. Beishamah makes the claim that on the first night of Hanukkah we light eight, and on the second seven, and on the third six, and until the last night of Hanukkah we light one. This is Beishamah's opinion. And the, the Talmud says, the Talmud says basically two reasons for this, and I'm not going to go into the details of the two reasons, but the Talmud says that Beishamai believes that you light as many candles as days you, as you still have. Okay? So, so uh, in other words, when you come to the second night of, of Hanukkah, for example, how many days of Hanukkah do you have left? Seven. So you light seven. You come to the third, you have six left, so you light six. You're always lighting to what you still have left. Okay? According to Beis Hillel, you light on the first one, the second two. In other words, you're not lighting to what you still have left, but you're lighting to what you've already received. I've received one day of Hanukkah, I've received the second day of Hanukkah, I've received the third day of Hanukkah, etc., etc. Now, this seems to be a very technical machlokas, but the reality is that there's something very deep in this machlokas. What's the machlokas? Let's face it. When you have a mitzvah, 
to do for eight days straight. Okay, when, it is, when is it more normal to, so to speak, very, be very like into it? The first day you're into it in the major way. The second day is already the second day. There's no Shechayanu, it's already the second day. You have a bellyache from the Lachis from the night before. It's already different. And by the third day it's even different. And by the fourth day it's even different. So, however, by, by individual people, it's different. A majority of the people fit into the scenario that I just described. But individual people are the exact opposite. A person that does the mitzvah of Hanukkah and really relates to it in a deep way and does the mitzvah with a neshama finds that each day there's a cumulative effect to Hanukkah. That in other words, each day I become more connected to the concepts. The concepts reach into a deeper place by the consistency of celebrating it a day and another day and another day. In other words, if you're coming from a very outwardly performance of the mitzvah, it becomes a drag. But if you're coming from an inwardly place, there's a build-up. Just like emotionally, when a person has a certain emotion and and every day he thinks about the emotion, we talk about emotional build-up. There's also spiritual build-up. So what's the difference between the single individuals and a majority of people? It has to do, are we doing the mitzvah in outwardly ways, or are we doing the mitzvah in inwardly ways? I once had a, a teacher of blessed memory, Rifutna Zechreina Levracha, that used to say, on Motzei Ayantif, he said, Nisht, Nisht ayantif avek, no ayantif tsugikumen. Translated into simple English, not that another yantif has gone away, but another yantif has amassed itself upon my growth. Okay, that that's the distinction between the two perspectives. Now, a person could argue, "Hey, Charlie, why should I light the menorah like Beis Hillel?" like adding on one every day. Isn't that presumptuous? I belong to the category of Avodah Hashem that as I move from day to day I'm, that there's this spiritual momentum building up in me? What is this, a spiel? Are you, are you so presumptuous to believe that you belong to those Yechidim, that you belong to those single individuals, that every day is a spiritual momentum and a spiritual build-up until you have a whole menorah blaze within yourself? Come off it. Be real. Live with what you are. Eight the first night, seven the second night, six the third night, and so on. But the reality is, who do we paskin like? The final law is like Beishamai or Beishelul. The final law for the time being, okay, until Mashiach comes, the law is like Beishelul. Which means that the person doesn't live with the attitude, be real and stop being presumptuous and light 87654. No. Act like the unique individual that lights from within. And light on the first night one, and on the second two. And on the third, three. And it's not hypocritical. Because that's the peculiarity of the Jew. That's personified in the whole Yontif of Hanukkah. That the Jew wants to reclaim his past. So even in the way we light the menorah, we light the menorah 
In other words, knowing we're not going to fool ourselves that we belong to those single individuals, but on a certain sense we want to make a statement that even if we're not there yet, we're hoping to get there. And that our first demonstration of our expression of wanting to get there is that we light one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then finally eight. In other words, that we light in the way of momentum as if to say that even though I know that I'm not there yet, but I hope to be able to travel the road to build spiritual momentum in my life. Right, I'll stop here and I'll gladly take questions. Yeah. What I find difficult is for somebody like Aharon, where he, where at least Moshe told him what he needed to do, or he seemed to know for himself what he needed to do, so he, he, he could go and do it. But um, for other people, where it's not clear to, to like for me or to us what what we're what we need to do or what we're supposed to do, or then then sometimes being unaccepting can lead us into no, it's a very good question, and I'll tell you what the answer to the question is. It's really a subject that demands a lot of time onto itself, okay? But if you really want to know the answer to that question, the answer to that question is that that is one of the primary functions of a person somewhere along the line getting for themselves a teacher getting for themselves a guide, getting for themselves a person that will advise them. That's, in other words, we think that, uh, yeah, I need a teacher because he knows and I don't know yet, so he's like the professor in college that teaches me the information. The whole concept of a person having a Rebbe or having a guide is not the professor concept. Okay? One of the major functions of a person having a Rebbe, like it says in Perkei Avos, is because that the Rav is the one that could function very much in the function that Moses had for Aaron. Okay? In other words, to be the, the role model, to be the inspiration, to be the motivator, to be the symbol for the person of what they can reach. The Rebbe, by definition, is a picture of, of Jewish history. Some are older than others. I don't mean it in that literal sense of how black or white a person's beard is. But after everything is said and done, the Rebbe is, in a certain sense, a link for the person to what his past is all about. And he functions as a human being to be an inspiration and a motivation to the person. Okay? The Marv Shemesh, the great Hasidic master, says that one of the major functions that a Rebbe needs to know as being a Rebbe is to lift the spirit of his students to be able to believe that their past belongs to them and that it's not something that doesn't belong to them. And a Rebbe that doesn't do that, the Marav Hashemish says, has failed as being a major transmitter of, the, of, the, of Jewish history becoming the future of the Jewish people. That's what the Marav Hashemish says and that's, that's, I, I can't find a better answer for you than that. Than that. Doing 
yes, but you will find that even doing the things that are quote unquote the technical things to do and so on and so forth, you will find eventually that you need that person to make the connections that you need to make. Okay? Now, they're not miracle workers, those people. They're just a, a, a link in the long chain of all of the, of all of the neshamas of Kali Yisrael to Hashem. You know, and they're, they're, they enable the links to come together between every individual soul and their, and their, you know, their highest roots. You're going to find that sooner or later you're going to need it. Um, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, it, and one could say that it is a, it is a, it is a lesson that, uh, that evolves from Hanukkah. I mean, I'm not going to go into it right now, but there's a lot of literature, and maybe you've heard talks on Hanukkah in this, in this regard, that talk about Hanukkah being the celebration of Torah Shebaal Peh, the celebration of the oral tr- transmission of Torah. And there are many ways to explain this, you know, Greek culture as opposed to uh, Jewish knowledge and Jewish wisdom, and where the differences lie, and the difference between the written law and the oral law. There are many, many different explanations of this. Okay, but after everything is said and done, if Hanukkah is the celebration, for whatever reason, of the oral tradition, the oral tradition is based, okay, on transmitters. It's based on those on those people being there that link the past with the future. Right? It's based on that. So one could say that your your question brings out a very valid point about Hanukkah, that uh, when I look for these wellsprings of being able to make my connections to the past. It's something that's not done in a healthy and, and uh, solid way without finding somebody that can, can help me make that link. Okay, Afrelich and Hanukkah.